This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the books, these great books for youth, The Amazing Sparky, and the other book, A Big Decision, and they're both authored by Kenneth Siegel, and Kenneth joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Kenneth. Good morning. Great to have you with us. Uh, we need more books with good moral messages. It's so important, and that's what you're all about, it seems. Uh, you like to talk about, especially, uh, let's, we'll just kind of focus on a big decision first. You say the, bu- the burden and consequences of personal responsibility. That right. is so important to teach young people, isn't it? And adults, too, but yes, especially for our young people. And uh, the the nature of my books is to try to to uh, obviously have an entertaining quality and a, and, a, and a, a character development, but clearly to to talk about personal responsibility, to talk about values, without being preachy. I mean, these are these are after all stories and and uh, with development. But um, the book talks about, as you said, personal responsibility. It talks about character, dependability, loyalty. Um, sacrifice for a greater good, and even uh, the reward of a good deed. Not that the good deed is always rewarded, but um, all of these factors are woven um, into that story. And I think that all of those are very worthy qualities that uh, we would like to see uh, reflected uh, in our children or grandchildren. Well, before we talk about the details of each of these books, Tell us about yourself, Kenneth, and uh, your background and how all this came about. Well, um, I am an ordained uh, reform rabbi um, and uh, have a doctorate, and uh, I have served uh, very large congregations uh, in major cities and uh, found that to be very rewarding, very stimulating, did a lot of speaking, teaching, counseling, uh, drew me close to families. I learned a lot by listening, by watching and by doing, and uh, was able to touch uh, a good number of lives, good number of causes, being involved in communities uh, uh, with uh, wonderful colleagues, uh, uh, building bridges of, of, of contact and respect. Um, and uh, then I reached a point where, uh, thank goodness, I had a good degree of uh, security, and um, uh, both financial and professional, and decided that um, uh, I really didn't have many hobbies. I mean, I like sports, I like music, um, always enjoyed literature, uh, travel. But it was time to, to develop something within myself because I discovered in people that so many that for whom I was delivering eulogies um, were going to do something, putting something off, that they had talents within them which they never really developed, never got to. And then I saw, on the other hand, people who in later age were doing painting or doing writing or, or, or traveling, or maybe it was, it was uh, um, if not musical instrument, it was gardening, whatever it was, uh, handiwork, uh, and so, so satisfied, and their days were so fulfilled. So I was searching, and I knew I was going to write. The question is what? Was it going to be fiction, nonfiction? And for years, I had told stories. My two little grandchildren always say, Grandpa, it's a ritual. Uh, when they visit or I visit them, 
before they go to bed, and I would make up these stories, and they were a great audience, a great audience. And then my daughter and even wife would sit in and say, have you written any of these down? And I said, no. And they said, well, you should. And <laughs> yeah. uh, that was really the, the, the drive. I've, I've been involved with little children for, uh, and teaching children for years, for really decades. And um, great energy, uh, great excitement comes, passion with children. And also to, to write children's books, you, you have to be able to communicate. And that means that you have to be a child, a bit of a child yourself. And that helps to keep you young. So I decided that... Uh, I would uh, kind of cast the bread out on the water and uh, uh, see what happens. And uh, so that's how we uh, began. And, and then I brought in some of the grandchildren's friends and, and parents and uh, read them some of my work. And, uh, well, clearly uh, well, I'm not Faulkner or Dickens or Hemingway, or these are, are not literature that will stop your heart and um, change the course of history. But I realized that we need, in children's literature, we need someone to be teaching values, to be teaching, let them read books that make them feel good and they can see that personal growth and personal um, responsibility, character development is important. And also I'm not doing it for the money and I think that's important. Um, uh, that certainly was not a factor in this. As a matter of fact, whatever little comes from it, um, other than the satisfaction, which is great, uh, but the money will go to charities. So, um, you know, it's not something that I'm, I'm pressed to do. Uh, it's something I'm doing as a labor of love. And the books have written themselves. I mean, I have a good number of stories yet to be published, but coming uh, forth in the pipeline. And, um, you know, these, these ideas um, have, have flowed smoothly. And that's great, because I've talked to a lot of authors who um, find blockages or they, they just, it's a struggle. And for me, um, this has really been, um, if I can say, easy uh, and uh, really a very um, enjoyable uh, and very stimulating activity. Well, let's talk about Jake. He's in a big decision. The title of the book, Jake, uh, as you call him, a very responsible fifth grader. Tell him, tell us what Jake is all about and some of his big challenges and decisions that he has to make. Obviously, a big decision. Well, Jake um, is... Uh, uh, very much committed, a very popular uh, young man and uh, uh, mature for his age, uh, very giving. Uh, he uh, was surrounded by a household of adoring pets. He takes meticulous care of them. That's really his uh, almost obsession. Uh, the pets included uh, an affectionate golden retriever, uh, a hamster, a sly cat, uh, a very opinionated parakeet, uh, some goldfish, a mischievous rabbi, a rabbi. Now that was a Freudian flip. Actually, <laughs> I'd be the mischievous rabbi. You didn't have me. You had a mischievous <laughs> rabbit <laughs> and, uh, and two sleepy turtles. But he had these pets, and he took, um, through his gentle caring and encouragement, understanding, um, he kept them healthy and strong and, and uh, never forgot them. He even fed them before himself. And so his friends would come over and play with him, and everyone knew uh, of his tremendous devotion. And likewise, the love that he showed uh, and kindness were reciprocated uh, by his pets. And uh, he passionately wanted to attend uh, a very special summer camp in Arizona um, that required each camper to be at least 10 years of age. And so he had had this dream before him, and he, now he had become 10, 
and he and his friend Drew were planning to attend uh, together for a month. Um, Jake was going to wanted to be a veterinarian, and uh, this uh, camping experience would uh, allow him to uh, milk cows and assist with the birthing of baby animals and feeding them and uh, picking fresh fruit, vegetables, and uh, building a, a bird sanctuary, riding horses, the usual gamut. And he just was thrilled to go, and it would enrich his knowledge and skills. Well, uh, because of his exceptional devotion to his pets, friends began to come to him and say, you know, Jake, we're going to be away. We're going to be traveling in the summer at a certain period of time, and we know how wonderful you are in giving to your pets. Um, would you be willing to take? And then they would mention what their pet was. And, and uh, really, three, four, five people came by with different pets, talking to him within a period of a few weeks. And now, though he was deeply committed um, to going to camp, he had to make a big decision. Would he give up his summer plans to stay home and look after his friend's pets? Would he choose to help others instead of pursuing uh, his own plans, his own pleasure, and how would that work out? Now, I don't want to give all the answers. Um, sure. I want people to read the book, but um, this was the process. And the beautiful thing about this is so often in life with children, um, decisions are made outside of them, that is, or, or for them, whether it's by parents, um, by school, by uh, other friends, uh, other circumstances. Uh, and then they have to react and do the best they can, uh, including uh, whether it's happiness or disappointment. But here, I'm trying to stress that within the individual, um, that one can um, deal with decision-making in a responsible manner, in a mature manner, um, in a challenging manner, because um, there was, there was uh, no wrong decision that would have been made, but there was one a little more right than another, and it was one that he came to on his own, he expressed it to his parents, and then the reaction they had and what developed from it. Uh, and that's what I'm trying to, to stress. Uh, it's not a matter of trying to diminish the role of parents or authority figures, not at all. But it is the fact that I think young people have much more uh, talent and ability, and sometimes we adults either to protect them or uh, somewhat uh, fearful of decisions they might make, and lacking full confidence in their judgment, uh, tend to creep in where we should uh, leave it to them. And this was a beautiful moment for Jake, and being a, a really a beautiful young man, um, uh, he, he did well. We all love our dogs. Your other book, The Amazing Sparky. Tell us about The Amazing Sparky. Well, the big decision is a book, I think, anywhere from, you know, a five, six-year-olds, probably up more till 11 or 12-year-olds, somewhere in there. The Sparky book is, um, is more of a fun book and aimed at those uh, uh, young people who might be, uh, you know, a little bit younger, uh, uh, five to eight, maybe somewhere in there. The book, they could learn how to read and read the book, or it could be read to them, but it's not a, a picture book. Um, you know, we all have had dogs, or many of us, not all, but as pets, and I think all of us have fallen in love with them. They've taught us uh, unconditional love, and and um, they've taught us uh, really that they can be very smart and special. Uh, many of them, almost everyone's pet does something funny or unusual, and Sparky's in that line. He, um, he's kind of an amazing dog, dearly beloved by his family, and... Um, 
he learned to do various things. Uh, he could do arithmetic uh, by uh, both addition <laughs> and subtraction. Uh, he would sing with his ears flapping in rhythm. Um, he, he could talk by entering into family uh, conversations with uh, strange sounds or an occasional bark. He could read. He'd bring in the daily newspaper and place his nose in the print and move his head from line to line. Uh, he could laugh out loud as he read. Sometimes he was happy. Sometimes he would almost look like he was crying or uh, when he was uh, reading something sad. And no matter what he did, he was special. Shopping for groceries in the supermarket, he, he would lead the family over through his paw and sounds to uh, what he wanted to take home. He enjoyed sports, particularly swimming. And um, he, uh, he had a great sense of humor. And that's important, too. I'm trying to teach that in my stories, not just the pets having it, but adults, children. We don't see enough humor, and much of the humor is aimed cruelly, I think, at other people uh, taking advantage of their weaknesses or um, in other way mocking. And this is gentle humor. This is good, healthy humor. Well, mysterious, strange things were happening in Sparky's home, and no one could explain uh, the unusual happenings, uh, you know, what was it, ghosts or leprechauns? And uh, things were disappearing and then reappearing and no clues. And this story teaches how the family worked together. They worked together, and with Sparky's help, they were able to solve the mystery. And uh, Sparky did prove in the final analysis that he was a, a wonder dog. Now, Summer said to me, well, but... Wouldn't the parents, you know, the story's pretty simple. It's enjoyable. It's pleasant. It's light. Um, but wouldn't the parents have known what was going on? Well, the book is not written for parents, number one. It's written for the children. And usually I've learned as a parent and grandparent, trying to be successful in both endeavors, that there are times we know things and we don't let the children know, or the children know that we know, but it's kind of a game. It's part of the humor. It's part of, you know, a sharing experience. Um, rather than preaching to them and telling them how much smarter we are and wiser we are, it's reflected. It comes out through an, almost an evolution in course of events. And so that's the story here. Not that the parents were um, uh, what we would call naive or, or, or uh, without a clue, but um, they were both part of the puzzle and part of the solution. And uh, it's, it's a nice, light, pleasant book. Um, that uh, can bring some uh, enjoyable moments. We've been listening to author Kenneth Siegel. He has two books, A Big Decision, The Amazing Sparky. And we appreciate you, Kenneth, being with us. Tell us how to get your two books. Well, my understanding is that um, one can call um, Author House, uh, that's uh, a possibility uh, for assistance. You can call them or look them up uh, uh, at um, www.authorhouse.com. Uh, also, uh, we're on Amazon. We're on um, all the major bookstores. We're on their lists. Um, and uh, so that's a way it can be done. And also, um, these um, books can be downloaded uh, free on, on, on ebook. Uh, and uh, there's some instruction to do that. But uh, So whichever way they can get them, they're available, and uh, uh, hopefully uh, uh, we'll provide some enjoyment um, and, and uh, some wholesome, wholesome uh, reading um, for, for young people. 
Well, thank you so much, Kenneth, for your dedication. And uh, I agree you're on the right track. And certainly we need this, this kind of message in our books, especially for young people. Kenneth Siegel, thank you for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station? Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, With Death Before Us. And the author is Mary Lou Morante. And Mary Lou joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Mary Lou. Hi. Good afternoon, Steve. It's a pleasure speaking to you. Well, it's great to have you here. This is quite a story. This is a journey a love story filled with miracles, the importance of perseverance, positive attitude, close family ties, spirituality, tons of love and faith. And we're talking about a family that had a 12-year journey, your husband's journey, the whole family's journey, with cancer. Correct. Absolutely correct. It was a journey, and obviously it started 12 years ago. Actually, it started before that. Uh, 12 years ago was when, well, actually 13 years, because they gave him three months to live, and he actually lived over a year, which we were very happy that he made it that long. Mm -hmm. And he lived life to the fullest until the day before he passed away, we were at a play. Um, it actually started three years previous, no, well, it would be two years previous to that, that would have been his first cancer bout. So what happened was he got cancer for three years in a row. Each time it was a different cancer. 
hmm. at Christmas time, like it was clockwork. Always Christmas. Yes, three years in a row at Christmas time, and the third time, of course, when he went to the doctor that day, and um, she had told him that there was a nodule, and anyway, by by the time he got back to the doctor. She had gotten the results of the biopsy and all that stuff. And um, we both felt like we were hitting the head with a brick, for sure. My husband looked at me, I looked at him, and we both sat there speechless. And um, after that meeting, I kicked into positive attitude. My personal feeling is if you are doomed and you're the caretaker, so will the patient be. So I kept a positive attitude throughout the whole journey. And it was a journey. Sometimes it was day by day. Sometimes it was moment by moment. And the book is filled with what I believed were miracles. And they're explained and pointed out throughout the book. The reason that the book was written was when he was diagnosed with the cancer the third time, that was devastating enough. But he was then transferred to fourth stage four cancer. It had metastasized to the brain. Anyway, every evening after I put my husband in bed and got him settled and cozy, I would go downstairs and cry my eyes out. And while I was doing that, after we got hit with that information, I was hit with an inspiration to write a book. And I was stunned. Write a book? I don't know. Of course, this is all in my mind. I write a book. I don't know how to write a book. I never wrote a book in my life. I don't know the first thing about writing a book. And no matter what scenario I came up with, it was bombarded with repeating. Write a book. You need to get the word out. Now, if you remember back then, this is before 9-11, the world had started to change, which has gone, obviously, downhill, but we're on our way back up again. And I felt like the spirituality was telling me that people need to, to go to a higher power, depend on somebody higher than them, which, of course, I did my whole life. Now, I'm not a Bible banger. I don't even go to church, but I talk to God daily. I don't feel it's necessary to have to be in church to talk to him, because I have a lot to tell him. <laughs> I'm always talking to him about something. Nonetheless, when my husband was diagnosed with the stage 4 cancer, well, to finish the, the writing the book part, I said, well... If you want me to write a book, you're going to have to show me the way every step of the way. And so be it. Whatever point I was at, whatever information I needed was put in front of me. I had to be aware of these things, but that's how things transpired. Okay. When, and this is one of the biggest reasons, well, God's been with me and helped me all through my life. It's not been an easy life, and it's neither here nor there, but this was the biggest trauma. After he was diagnosed, well, first of all, I called on my children when he was diagnosed with stage 4. 
And I said to them, I'd like to have a conference with a doctor in the morning if you'll meet me here, because she gets there really early in the morning. And I would like for you to be there. Reason being, if she would ask a question that I didn't think, I mean, if you wanted to ask a question that I didn't think of, you'll be able to ask the question and have all your questions answered right from the horse's mouth. So that's what we did. And that's when the children found out that he had stage four and it metastasized to the brain. After that, I disappeared. And I went to my car and I was pounding on the steering wheel, crying and pleading and begging, praying. And I asked God, I said, I only would like three things. I would like to get him back to Florida. I'd like to get him back to Maui. And I don't want him to die in my bed at home. Because I knew I wouldn't be able to handle that at all. In the meantime, my kids obviously were looking all over for me. And they finally found me in the car. And But I never said anything to any of them other than they could tell I was crying. So about, I would say, three months before the book went to print, my son said the same thing because I was going crazy with the editing and everything that's involved. And I was on a journey to get this book printed by Christmas. Now, that wasn't for money. It was just something I felt I needed to have closure. That was a good time for me to have closure on this. And so my son said to me, brought up that question again. Mom, why are you doing this to yourself? I said, I'm going to tell you, Tony. I'm going to tell you the last, very last time. Don't ever ask me again. Do you remember when we were at the hospital, Daddy was diagnosed with stage four and I disappeared? He said, yeah. I said, blah, 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 blah. I went through the whole scenario to bring his mind back there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I said, I was praying and I asked for three things. And I repeated those to him. I said, in every one of those those requests were fulfilled. Do you really think I could turn my back on God? He never, he never even said another word, and it's never mentioned. Mm-hmm. And now he's very proud, and he's read the book. He said, Mom, I don't know how you remembered it all. Well, I was taking notes and journaling through the thing. I mean, it's not like I, I lived it. Writing that book, I lived every step of the way. And, of course, there was a lot, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the book. The book was not written for money. The book was written, if this book helps one person, and they come to me and say, Mary Lou, you open my eyes to whatever, and it helped them in any way, that would be payment enough. That's the way I look at it. And you so, talk about miracles. Give us an example of, of a miracle that happened along the way. Okay. Well, those particular prayers were answered, which I think were miracles, and way, way, way beyond that in the year that he lived. 
He escaped death. I can't even tell you how many times throughout his whole life. And when I went to start writing the book, I actually thought he was going to go in a medical book as escaping death. I really did. Because through all of the, he had everything from back surgery, the hemorrhoids, to you name it. And some of them were death-threatening. And he always responded and got better. So I actually stopped writing the book when I lost him because it didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to be which I thought would have really been a miracle. You know what I'm saying? Sure. But still, I was pulled back to the book by actually people at the, um, when I was going to grief group. But the miracles that transpired, while he was in the hospital, I never left my husband's side. I slept there. And thank God there was a support group, and I hate to even admit this, and the smoking they call it a smoking shed at the hospital. If it weren't for them and my family, I don't know how well I would have done throughout this journey. But they were being in the medical. As a matter of fact, I was there so much they thought I worked there <laughs> until I explained what was going on. Mm-hmm. But at one point, what happened was he actually ended up having, before he even went for the biopsy. He went to pick up our granddaughters, twin granddaughters, and I knew that they would be back. And when, of course, I heard the doorbell, because my granddaughters love ringing the doorbell. And I went to the door to let them in. They said, Nanny, Papa said to come and get you because he's, he's not feeling well. They said, he even pulled over on the side of the road. He's really sick. Well, I no longer heard that. I was ready to dart outside. And he comes falling through the door. And, of course, I panicked. I was hysterical, and I couldn't keep him to stay coherent. Obviously, I called an ambulance, and I put a nitro underneath his tongue right away. And we got to the hospital. Now, he already had had two open-heart surgeries, and he also had two lung surgeries previous to this episode that night. We get to the hospital, and, of course, the cardiologist is called, and the nurse stayed right with my husband. I knew it was serious. The doctor came, and he was examining him, and they were pumping all kinds of medicine into him, and I said to the doctor, it's as hard, isn't it? I could tell by the, by the monitors. I'd been through it before. He looked at me, put his hand up to his lips, like, shh. And he said to the nurse, he says, get him set up for an angiogram immediately. And he ended up having open-heart surgery before they could even deal with the cancer. And so he pulled through that, and they didn't expect him to. I mean, they gave us gloom and doom. They said, first of all, he's sick. He's got cancer. The veins in his legs have, the best veins in his legs have been used up with the other two open heart surgeries. He was in surgery for six hours. Mm. And he pulled through that. That's a miracle in itself. 
Then we get home, and he doesn't want to tell me about aches and pains that he's having, but I could tell. I said, Tony, what's wrong? He said, I'm having pain in my chest. I said, well, that's nothing to fool around with. You just had open-heart surgery. Let's go get it checked. Well, he did not want to go back to the hospital because he's been Mm -hmm. in and out of the hospital so many times. I said, Tony, if there's nothing wrong, we can come right home, but let's go be sure. Look at how far you've come and all you've been through. Well, I got my daughter on the phone. Between the two of us, we convinced him. We get him to the hospital, and the doctor says, I hate to do this. I hate to give him another angiogram because it's very dangerous, but we're between a rock and a hard place. We have to know what's going on with his heart. Well... During that episode, of course, my whole family was there, and this was in the evening by this time. And I hear them call, code blue, code blue. I knew. I knew it was my husband. And how I kept refrained from running through those doors, I don't know. Hmm. He pulled through that. That's another miracle. I mean, when the doctor came out and he says, you know, all we could do is so much. We're not gods. And he's never really taken care of himself, meaning, you know, diet and all of that, because he's a heart patient. And he says, you know, the next 24 hours will tell. Well, I lost it. Okay, that was another miracle. I'm now sure it was. It, uh, yes. This, this is a true grit memoir that you can tell by listening to Mary Lou. She has uh, shared in her book all these day by days, even moment to moment. Well, Mary Lou, we're just out of time here. I want, want to make sure we all know how to get your book with Death Before Us. Tell us how to get your book. Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, AuthorHouse.com. Dot com, And if they go on Google with my name, Mary Lou Moranti, they'll find, I was shocked myself when I went on Google. There's, I think, five or six pages of information. And, of course, the, the Internet sites that I gave you to go to also give you, they'll show you the book, the front of the book. Incidentally, my granddaughters designed the cover of the book. And they're 21 now. They just graduated college. But at that time, obviously, they were 12 years younger. And their papa was their eyes and vice versa. So it's a very, very special, um, very special book to our family. And I hope it will be to the people that read it. I'm sure it will be. It will help a lot of people. Mary Lou Morante. Thank you so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you so much, and you have a super day. It was wonderful speaking to you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Have questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. 
Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown, and after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Wake Up, America, Before It's Too Late, a decision paper. And the author is Colonel Ellis D. Bingham, U.S. Army retired, and Colonel Bingham joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Colonel. Oh, good afternoon, Steve. It's good to hear from you. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me just give everyone an overview of this really great book. And I guess it says it so well, we all need to wake up. And that's your determination and your focus is to wake up America. You say next to our Holy Bible, the Constitution of the United States is probably the second greatest document ever written. And if Americans want our country to remain the land of the free and the home of the brave, they should read my book, Wake Up America, before it's too late. So we're going to talk about some different aspects of your book. Uh, you kind of break it down into problems, and uh, because that's your background, uh, being a military man, an analyst for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But tell us, kind of take us back and tell us a little bit about your military service, and we salute you for your great military service Colonel? Well, it goes back to December of 1950. I was in my sophomore year at the University of Michigan. I went up there from Kentucky. I'm a Kentuckian, by the way, like Rand, uh, uh, Rand Paul. But anyway, the uh, I, my, co- my cousin was in uh, the Marine Corps tank battalion, and he was trapped in the Chosen Reservoir. So when I went home for Christmas, I ran off and joined the Marine Corps, and on 28 December 1950, I found myself at, uh, at uh, uh, oh, down in, uh, in Carolina or Georgia, but anyway, the Paris Island. And uh, six months later, uh, I'm in Korea as a, uh, with the 5th Marines, Easy Company then, they called it Easy, it's Echo now, but Easy Company, 5th Marines, as a light machine gunner. 
And uh, in fact, my picture is uh, in one of the history, complete history of the of the Marine Corps, uh, behind my gun. Uh, I spent six and a half years in the Corps from my uh, uh, Korean uh, venture. I received a uh, meritorious commission to second lieutenant, uh, temporary. Now, I don't know if the Marines still have that now or not, but, but what that means is you still have two record books. You have your enlisted record book and your officer's record book. I made uh, first lieutenant uh, uh, when I was aboard the, the aircraft carrier uh, CVS-36, the old Antietam. Uh, my, my last tour in the Marine Corps as a first lieutenant was the company commander for the anti-tank company, Six Marines. Now, that was a captain's position, and here a, a little first lieutenant has, has got the company. I didn't have a captain friend in Camp Lejeune. Uh, the, uh, the regimental commander uh, sent his... Uh, uh, three down and told me that he wanted me to put in for the reserves, finish my college so I could get a regular commission. The Marine Corps, uh, that was Max C. Chapman was the regimental commander. I think he later made commandant. But anyway, I put my letter in. The Marines approved it. And, of course, in 57, that was in 57, The uh, everything uh went to the Navy for funding. They disapproved it. And uh, when I was young, I had a bit of a temper. So I resigned from the Marine Corps, went back, re-enrolled in the University of Michigan, had my little 19-year-old wife. I was 25 at the time. And uh, I was working at Sears and Roebuck in the sporting goods department uh, until school started. The secretary came down and said, Ellis, you have a call from the Pentagon, and I'll never forget the individual's name, uh, a Lieutenant Colonel uh, Canastra. And I went and answered the phone, and he said, are you the former first Le Marine First Lieutenant Ellis Bingham? And I said, yes, sir. He said, we've been looking all over for you, and we want you to come into the Army. We'll give you the same rank same data rank and a regular army commission. And uh, Steve, I talked to my wife and they wanted to, they said, send us a telegram and let us know if you accept and your availability. Well, I talked to my sweet little wife and she said, honey, you're not going to be happy out of uniform because I'd been in a military uniform since I was 15 because for some reason they sent me to military school. But anyway, the, uh, I sent him a telegram, and I said, I accept the com commission in the U.S. Army. I said, I'm available immediately. All I have is my wife and my dog. And, Steve, this was the old Army. I got a, the, the uh, Western Union guy, and then they rode bicycles in those days. That's before your time with little <laughs> bells on. But anyway, the... Western Union guy came, handed me a telegram and said, congratulations. I have this in a scrapbook somewhere. He said, congratulations. Consider yourself on active duty in the United States Army as a first lieutenant, blah, blah, blah. Proceed immediately. 
with your wife and your dog to Fort Monmouth, New Jersey. <laughs> that's <laughs> the old Army for you. But that's how I got into the Army. And you served there until when did you finally retire? I retired in uh, June of 76, 25 and a half years of military service. You've got some very... Go ahead. Again, uh, sometimes I let my temper get the best of me. Something was going on. I'm not going to say what on, on the... It, uh, I was the director of my last assignment. I was the director for the training of all officers, warrant officers, and senior NCOs in the Signal Corps. And uh, something happened, uh, and uh, it, it really upset me. And uh, so I went before the general and told him, and I said, I'm, I'm, re- I'm retiring. I hand-carried my papers, and a friend of mine was on the uh, personnel committee at, uh, in, in Washington, and he begged me not to retire. And I said, no, I'm disgusted. I'm getting out. And I saw him about a year and a half later, and I had been on the brigadier general's list. <laughs> so sometimes I'm my own worst enemy. <laughs> Well, you put it very bluntly. You say deep within our own United States government and elements within and outside our nation, there appears to be an insidious plot to destroy our Christian heritage and our American way of life. Give us your feelings about all that and what you see. Well, what our government is not putting two and two together. I spent a couple of years in Saudi Arabia after I retired, and their birth rate, and I cover this slightly in my book, their birth rate is 6.5%, and most of the Muslim, most of those countries are on a big sand pile. There's no place for them to go to live. Now, if you... Remember, if you heard about Kuwait, they had some Swedish or, or European outfit actually build a peninsula out into the ocean uh, so they could build uh, condom- condos on it and stuff for their people. Now, the, our government is not asking the question, why are so many Arab Muslims? Now, listen, there are good ones. Uh, but among the Arabs, there's very few. You don't see American Muslims uh, uh, rioting and doing all of this nonsense. But the Arab Muslims are flooding into this country because they can't even feed their own people. And if you have read parts of the Obamacare, it's almost a mirror image of the programs that the Muslim world has for for health and so forth. And oil money is paying that. We give them billions, and it's ridiculous. We're paying for the terrorists. And uh, in order, now, if you also look, there are no jobs for the bulk of their male population. So 
the only thing they're doing, and if you look at history, the same thing has happened, you know, since since our beginning or since their beginning, is is they simply pay them. It's it's their job, and they send them out there so that they don't make mischief at, at home. I mean, if if they didn't have terrorism, these people would would be stacked up, and we're allowing them to come into this country. And uh, there are there are three types of Muslims. There's sectarian, moderate, and then the Wahhabis or whatever you want to call them. Uh, the uh, the uh, uh, Muslim Brotherhood and, and CARE, uh, the, the Council for American Islamic Relations, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're subversive. And if you look in the dictionary and and uh, and look it up, it, it's 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 they want to subvert our country, and uh, I cover this in my book in some detail. But the things I covered, the seven things I've covered, Steve, are only the tip of the iceberg. We right. have some real problems. Well, and you also point out that the Muslim Brotherhood and the Council of American Islamic Relations have a tremendous influence in Washington. Uh, they're invited into the White House. Well, not only that, they have uh, the State Department has uh, that uh, that lady in the State Department under uh, the, the previous. She's still there. Uh, she has a Muslim brother. Brotherhood background, and so does their parents. Uh, Homeland uh, Department of Homeland Security has has two of them in there, and uh, there's there's two or three, and I've got the details on all of them with their pictures. The uh, that I got from my old dinosaur friend who died on me, but uh, uh, they're in the White House, and right. uh, they're make they're making decisions. Uh, for the president. We've all wondered for many decades why we're not energy independent. We certainly have more oil than the rest of the world. Why aren't we energy independent from your point of view? Well, because you, I would say, now I'm guessing at this, but the uh, environmentalists in here our oil companies know how to protect the environment. We have got more oil and natural gas than any other nation in the world. And and if you look at the, and I cover this in my book in some detail, but uh, if you look at the price of oil in Saudi Arabia, a gallon of gas, 12, 12 cents a gallon. And in the other countries, some of it is even less down to nine cents but this is ridiculous and by importing their oil and paying them uh we're simply giving them the money to pay their terrorists now if you look at the uh oh the department of uh, uh what is it uh that was formed in the 70s to bring us out of, i have this in my book the uh at 83 sometimes i forget names but the uh, if you look at the uh, 
that department, uh, Department of Energy, and uh, they formed them, and we were then only doing 30% of oil uh, from abroad, buying it. Now it's 70%, and that whole department should be uh, disestablished. But, uh, what about the what about the Second Amendment? The Second Amendment was one of the greatest things that. Uh, now I covered this in detail in my book, and the Second Amendment was was actually put in there from Thomas Jefferson, uh, who I'm a Jeffersonian by the way. The uh, and and he got it from uh, reading uh, Machiavelli book. And uh, everybody uh, uh, uses Machiavellian as kind of a bad word, but he's the one that that armed uh, the people uh, when uh, the Catholic Church had all those mercenaries in there. But anyway, Thomas Jefferson is is, uh, is the one that put that in there, and uh, and in relation to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I use a lot of his quotes, and uh, I'm a hobby cabinet maker and wood woodworker, and I recently uh, made several of his lap desks. I got I did my clan from a picture. It's in the Smithsonian Institute, the one he wrote the Declaration of Independence on, and I made several and given them to my friends. Well, but you anyway, also. Uh, if if they ever disarm the American people, uh, our country is dead. And and what a lot of people don't realize that Black Americans will be the last people to ever be disarmed. And if, and if and if the terrorists start killing women and children the way they do in their own countries, let me tell you something. The first time a, a black baby and, and uh, mother go down, every damn male Muslim in this country will end up with a target on his back, mm. and it would be justified. Well, you also talk about the secu uh, Social Security system and the economy. Uh, we're out of time to talk anymore, but we certainly... Uh, Appreciate you being on. It's uh, you know you also talk about the United Nations, the Israel survival as a Jewish state. Uh, your book is comprehensive, even though it is a uh, kind of a small book, uh, about a hundred pages. But we appreciate you so much, Colonel, for being with us and sharing your views. Uh, tell us how to get your book, Wake Up America, before it's too late. Well, it's uh, you can get it from uh, Amazon, uh, Books a Million, uh, Barnes and Noble, and if anyone has any uh, any doubts about it, if they go on, I think it's Amazon Comp, uh, and uh, also uh, Barnes and Noble, and they can go below the picture of the book and punch it and see uh, my introduction. I think if if uh, there's any doubts in their mind, if they read just my introduction, I think it would it would sell them on the book. Well, thank you so much, Colonel, for being with us. We appreciate you being with us on Author Talk so much. And again, thank you for all your service and uh, still defending America. Thank you. 
Well, thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. And uh, this old soldier needs all the help he can get. You have a good one.